We now bring you the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast, featuring the late Dr. Harold B. Seitler, founding pastor of Tabernacle Baptist Church and Ministries in Greenville, South Carolina. And now, today's edition of the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. Now tonight, I want to speak to you on the miracle of Israel. The miracle of Israel. This is a message on Bible prophecy. And I hope that you'll listen to me. I hope that you'll give me your ear and your attention for the next few minutes. And I'll do my best to try to give you something from the Bible that might help you in your meditation and study in relation to the second coming of our Lord. Now, the miracle of Israel. I believe the Lord is coming back in the second advent. No man knows the day and the hour. And if I stood in the pulpit and suggested that the Lord was going to return in 1971, 1972, 1973, it'd be only a guess. I could speculate, but I don't know for sure. Nobody knows for sure. For long years, I preached on the second coming of our Lord. And sometimes people might say, Brother Harold, you preach so much on the second coming. Maybe, maybe it isn't real. Maybe it's not going to happen. Oh, brother, I preach a great deal on death. That's real. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Sure as you live, I'm going to die. And don't feel too badly for me because you're headed in the same direction. Sure as you live, you're going to die. And uh, that's sure. We, we preach about death. That's sure. We preach about it a great deal. Uh, you say, well, maybe you'll just forget it. No, no. Death is too real. A lot of things we talk about a great deal. The fact that we mention them a great deal doesn't mean that they're not necessarily so. Not at all. Same way with prophecy. When you begin to talk about prophecy, you can talk about it and recount it and rethink it and re-preach it over and over again. But that doesn't take from the reality of it one bit. In fact, the very fact that we're preaching on the second coming is an indication within itself that the Lord is soon coming again. Behold, at midnight there was a cry made. No generation in all the history of the church has so heard the message of the second coming as this one. And the reason that's so is because this is midnight. There's only one midnight, and we are now at midnight. Only one. We are now at midnight. There's only one end time, and we are now at the end time. There's only one harvest, and we are now in the gleanings of the harvest of the resurrection. Right at the end of the age. That's right. We're right at, the, right at the time of the end, the harvest, the second advent of our Lord. And he's coming again. Now of all the signs, and I, I love to study the signs, and I have made, I wouldn't say uh, a study to the degree that some people have made, but I have studied the signs, and you know that. I've preached around them many times in the pulpit. Of all the signs of the second coming that convince me that the Lord's coming is indeed at hand, no sign so convinces me of that as the sign of the budding of the fig tree. The sign of the nation of Israel. Somebody has said that the Jew is God's timepiece. I don't think you could say it better than that. The Jew is God's timepiece. And you look at the Jew and you can tell just about what time it is on God's great dispensational clock. And you can tell just about what time it is in the age of the church. Though the Jew is not part of the church, unless he's born again, the Jew is one thing, the church is something else. And in the church, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, by the way. You're born again, you become a Christian, you become a child of God, you're part of the church of God when you're born again. 
A Jew is one thing, the church something else. But in the church age, we Christians that are born of God's Spirit know what time it is by watching the Jew. And as we watch the Jew, and in particular, as we get closer to the end of the age, we know that the end is nigh, the coming of the Lord is at hand. By the things that we discern from the Bible and observe from the Bible in relation to the house of Israel and the Jew and the land of Palestine. Now, I'd like to note three verses with you, four, and then I'll give you my outline or my message for the hour. In Ezekiel 36 and verse number six, God said, Ezekiel, prophesy concerning the land of Israel. Note, the land of Israel. I'll be saying some things about the land of Israel in a moment. That's verse 6, Ezekiel 36. Now verse 24, in the same chapter, I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. L-A-N-D, land. Into your own land. You say, well, how do you know that belongs to Israel? What authority do you have for making a statement like that? In Genesis chapter number 12, in verses 1, 2, and 3, God gave what we call the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham. And in that covenant, the land of Israel is involved. Palestine, we sometimes call it. Really, me and you that are saved ought not to call Israel Palestine because the name Palestine was given to the land by the Philistines. And the Philistines have long since become extinct. The Arabs call it Palestine, but the Bible calls it Israel. And I think in these latter days, we ought to call the land Israel because that's God's word and God's way of calling the land, the land of Israel, verse number six. But I'm going to gather you out and bring you out of all countries and gather you back together and bring you into your own land, the land that I gave to Abraham as an everlasting possession and to his seed as well. Then verse 34 in the same chapter, and the desolate land, L-E-N-D, Israel, the desolate land. Now, I don't think God gave to Abraham a desolate land. I think God gave to Abraham the nearest thing to a garden of Eden that there was in existence. I can't conceive of God giving a desert to Abraham. Now, it later became a desert. I can't conceive of God giving anything less than an Eden to Abraham. It later became a desolate land, but God in the original uh, gave a fruitful, a productive, a blessed land to Abraham and to his seed. Now, when the people of Israel were carried away into the Babylonian captivity and then into the final dispersion in 70 AD, God withheld the rain, and this Eden land that God gave to Abraham dried up and became barren and desolate and was a desert, barren and desolate, for 2,000 years. But you and I, as I'll see a little bit later on, have seen a renewal of the land of Israel as well as a rebirth of the nation of Israel. And the desolate land shall be tilled, plowed, planted, cultivated, whereas it lay desolate in the eyes of all that passed by for all those two centuries since 70 AD down to this blessed hour in which we now live, uh, recently rather, the land lay desolate in the eyes of all that passed by. Somebody said, Israel is a crossroads of the, of the old world. 
uh, the merchants traveling from Europe down into Africa and from Europe over into the uh, far eastern countries and as well as the Middle Eastern countries uh, cross in the land of Palestine. And there's a lot of truth there, crossroads of the world. And when people cast, passed by, they saw the land was barren and desolate and worthless. But that barren, desolate land, Ezekiel prophesied, shall one day uh, be cultivated and tilled. And they say, verse 35, this land, there's your word land again, Israel, Palestine, Israel, this land that was desolate, nobody could deny that. And if you have been to Israel, you've seen a little bit of the desolation that yet remains. The Sinai Desert, for example, is a barren desert just as much as some of the deserts in Arizona, in America. And nobody lives in those deserts in the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, 500 miles from Gaza to the Suez Canal, 500 miles across that barren, bleak desert, a worthless wasteland right now. And yet those Jews are pushing the irrigation water further and further south in the Sinai Desert. And everywhere they get the irrigation water from the Sea of Galilee to that Sinai Desert, it turns green. I never shall forget the first time I was in Israel, we visited down in Bathsheba, where Abraham lived, and it was a desert wasteland. I mean, the mountains were bare. There wasn't even a, a sprig of grass on any of the hills. But the last time I was in Israel, that whole country of Bathsheba, of a great city, by the way, is now built uh, there it, called Bathsheba. Thriving city, almost a brand new city. Oh, I guess 50,000 people in that city now with beautiful new apartment projects, dozens of them. High-rise apartments, many of them in Bathsheba. And the land all around that the first time I was there five years ago was a desert. The last time I was there, they had sheep grazing on the hills of Bathsheba. Where'd that grass come from? It came from the irrigation the Jews has produced in all the land of Palestine, using the waters of Galilee to irrigate the land. And streams have broken forth from the desert. And this desolate land now is being tilled and cultivated. And they that passed by said, this land <coughs> that was desolate <coughs> is become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and the ruined cities are become fenced and are inhabited. That's exactly what I said just a moment ago. They said, this desolate land <coughs> has become like the Garden of Eden. That's exactly what I said a moment ago. And not only have I said that, but any man that can see it and does see it will say the same thing. Whether he's a preacher or a merchant or a marina or whatever it may be, if he sees the, uh, the Eden that the land is now in comparison to what it was just a few short years ago, he'll say exactly what Ezekiel said all of us would say. And they shall say, the land that was desolate is become like the Garden of Eden. And I could go on and talk a great deal about that. But I'll stop with those three or four verses uh, as an introduction to my message. Now what is the miracle <coughs> of the land? We know the land's been there all the time. We know the land was given to Abraham and to his seed as an everlasting possession. We don't deny that at all. We believe that <coughs> sincerely in our heart. But the land when the Israelites were dispersed 
And in 70 AD, when the Roman Emperor Titus conquered the land, destroyed the city, and destroyed Solomon's temple, historians tell us that Jews flooded the slave markets of Athens, Greece, Rome, Italy, Alexandria, Egypt, Cairo, Egypt. The slave markets were flooded. The Jews were sold as slaves in every slave market and carried away in all the world in 70 AD. Totally, completely, every able-bodied person that could leave the land was carried away and sold into slavery. And of course, God withheld the rain and that land of Israel dried up immediately, became a desert wasteland. And for 2,000 years, the Jews were scattered around the world, very, just a handful possibly in their native land. The Jews were scattered in America, South America, Africa, England, Europe, all around the world, it was scattered. And they settled in these various lands around the world. And then when the time clock began to click, things began to happen. World War Number 1 came to a halt in 1918. And the only benefit anybody ever got out of World War Number 1 was the Jew and Israel. And at the end of World War Number 1, the Allen Bay Declaration made by the British General Allen Bay, who wrestled Palestine in 1917 from the Turks, who had possessed the land, occupied the land for 400 years prior to 1917. England declared that land shall be made a national home for the Jew around the world. And the, General, General, the Allen Bay Declaration gave Palestine back to the Jew as a national <coughs> homestead and homeland. And immediately, Jews begin to migrate from around the world back to Palestine. 1917, that's way back before as many of you were born. And before many of you could remember. But all that came from World War Number 1, the Allenby Declaration. And one more time, Palestine was opened up. And immigrants were allowed while Turkey had the land. 400 years prior to World War Number 1, the Jews were not permitted to go back into the land. But with the Alamba Declaration, the doors were open. Migration began to go back to Palestine. And then time rocked on. God's timepiece began to move. <coughs> and in 1948, close of World War Number Two. The only good thing I know that came out of World War Number Two happened to the Jew and to Israel. World War Number Two is now over. Armistice is now signed. Japan is now defeated. Germany is now crushed. And World War Number Two has come to a halt. And out of that, 1948, May the 15th, the state of Israel was not only open from immigrants from around the world, but the state of Israel was reborn miraculously. Reborn! And for the first time in 2,000 years, the flag of David now flies over the ancient land of Palestine. For the first time, there is currency made there's a government set up, there's an army organized, there's an air force developed, an educational institution organized. The Hebrew University in Jerusalem right now has 25,000 students. One of the most beautiful campuses I've ever seen in all the world is the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. All that's come to pass since May the 15th, 1948. World War number two brought this land again into a reality. And Israel took her place among the nation to the earth. 
as a nation in the UN, as a nation among all the nations of the earth, born miraculously, born, we believe, in, in, in due time, according to God's prophetic word and God's matchless timepiece, the nation of Israel is now reborn. And from 1917 up to 1948, the rainfall is coming. The Jews, with their skill and their know-how, are developing great irrigation systems. And things, uh, the foundation is being laid for the rebirth of the nation, where thousands of other Jews that could never come otherwise are now soon coming. Until today, you have almost three million Jews crowded into a little area on the globe about the size of South Carolina. Three million Jews plus maybe a million Arabs into that area called Israel today. Miraculous. Miraculous. Now, I want to call to your mind some things about the miracle of Israel. May I remind you, first of all, of the ethnological miracle that Israel is. What do you mean by that word, ethnological? Could a nation having been dead as long as Israel is dead live again? Now you search the annals of history and you'll not find anything like this in any history you may study. There was a time when there was an ancient Babylonian empire. There was a time when there was an ancient Medo-Persian empire. There was a time when there was an ancient Egyptian empire. And there was a time when Napoleon ruled all of Europe with the exception of Russia. And many other great dictators and kings have conquered and possessed people and brought together great empires for a time and then they disintegrate and cease to exist. And not one of those in all history has ever been revived. If I stood in this pulpit tonight and said that the Egyptian empire will be revived or the Babylonian empire will be revived or the Medo-Persian empire will be revived or the Grecian empire will be revived, you'd laugh me down. And rightly so. In fact, is the little nation of Greece would probably not even be in existence today were it not for America. To say nothing of a great empire worldwide in its scope. Never has a nation died and for 2,000 years been completely extinct and then revived, brought into reality again, except this one instance. How about the Philistines? There was a time when the Philistines, while Israel was in the land of Egypt those 400 years, in the Egyptian bondage, those Philistines built a civilization on the west shores of the Mediterranean Sea, almost unbelievable. They built mighty cities that are almost unbelievable. The ruins that remain until this day of those Philistine cities are astounding. Their marketplaces and their forums and so on they are almost unthinkable. Their, their, their temples are almost unbelievable. That an ancient people could build such cities as the Philistines built on the shores of the Mediterranean. But today there is no Philistine nation. In fact, there are no Philistine people, but there's certainly no Philistine nation. And if I stood in this pulpit and said the time will come when the Philistine empire will be revived and a new Philistine nation will be organized, you'd lap me down. It's not going to happen. It hasn't happened. It's not going to happen. But here's a nation in God's eternal economy and God's eternal purpose Dead for two millenniums.
Prince, 2,000 years, no flag of David, 2,000 years, no army, no 2,000 years, no homeland, 2,000 years, no nation, no parliament, no government. And then 1948, May the 15th, this nation, old and ancient, gives birth to a brand new nation. That's never happened in all history with any other people. Isn't that signal? Isn't that interesting? Isn't that, to say the least, peculiar? If you, was an, if you were an agnostic or an infidel and you didn't believe the Bible, you discounted the Bible, you rejected the Bible, and you call me a fanatic for believing it, you couldn't gainsay what I've just said. You'd have to give what I've just said at least some consideration. And I challenge you to check any history book you may. There has never been anything like the birth, the rebirth of Israel in all the history of the nations of man from the dawn of civilization till this day. But it happened. And the reason it happened is because God prophesied that it would happen. And we've lived, you and I have lived to see the day of an ethnological miracle unparalleled by anything in all the history of the human family. Here, ethnological means many people, many nationalities of, uh, families of people, nationalities of people, races of people coming together. Here are these Jews from Russia, from France, from England, from America, from South America, from the Orient, with all kind of backgrounds and all kind of cultures, and no doubt all kind of religions, and yet one common bond that bound them together, the bond of a family, name, and blood. And the bond of a God, Jehovah. And they come back from all these various backgrounds. Ordinarily, it would have been an impossible thing to think of getting so many different people together in one nation. That's why it's a miracle. And yet God knew exactly how to bring these Jews back together with one another and back in their own native homeland and so fix it until they could agree and get along and I guess the most united nation in all the world today with the highest morale of any nation in all the earth is the little nation of Israel God had to be in that otherwise it could have never happened a miracle indeed has transpired right before our very eyes now the answer to that miracle, you hear me please, the answer to that miracle is the Bible and prophecy and Almighty God. In the next chapter, 37, the Bible clearly says that these bo this boneyard that Ezekiel saw is a symbol of all the 12 tribes of Israel, the whole family of Israel. And God said, Ezekiel, can these dry bones live again? Here's Ezekiel looking at that valley of dry bones, typical of Israel dispersed and scattered, disunited around the world, dead, dry, lifeless. And God said, Ezekiel, can these bones live again? And Ezekiel said, oh, Lord, thou knowest. In other words, he's saying, if they do, you'll have to do it. That's what he's saying. He's saying, as far as I'm concerned, and as far as I know, they can never live again, Lord, thou knowest whether they're going to live again. Well, God did know, brother. He did know. So he said, Ezekiel, you just start prophesying. 
And I imagine Ezekiel looked at that valley of dry, dry bones and said, what earthly good will it do for me to prophesy? Nothing can do anything to this situation. It's helpless and hopeless. It's beyond repair. It'll never be salvaged. What earthly good will it do for me to prophesy? But God said, you just let me handle that. You prophesy. And you know what happened in that symbolic story in chapter number 37? Ezekiel began to prophesy. The old clock of God began to turn. And the first thing you know, those bones began to move. Amen. And the miracle is that they just didn't only begin to move. They moved each joint to the joint he was supposed to be attached to. I mean, the, the uh, leg bone didn't attach itself to the neck bone. But the leg bone attached itself to the ankle bone. And that's the miracle. Every bone got together at the right place. At the right time. And I imagine Ezekiel watched those bones begin to move and they moved in unity and moved in order and he scratched his head and he said, my, what about that? But he kept on prophesying. And after a while, this flesh insinuated on those bones and now he's got a valley of dead corpse. Just about as pitiful as they were when he started. Look a little bit better maybe. At least they had uh, form and they had unity. But they were dead. And that's Israel before 1948. Back in the land with their native land in Palestine. Thousands of Jews going back, getting together, every man to his right place. But they're still lifeless. There's no breath. And God said, prophesy to the wind. And Ezekiel prophesied to the wind. And the wind came in and gave breath to those corpses. And they stood up on their feet. An exceeding great army. The nation reborn. Now I know that picture also has to do with the revival of Israel. Spiritual revival of Israel that's yet in the future. Now what I'm talking about now is in the past. The revival that God's going to give the people of Israel is yet in the future. And that's going to be a miracle as much as the revival of the state. The revival of pure religion is going to break out among the Jews in Palestine. In, I believe, the not-too-distant future. And that'll be a miracle as well. Now, that's it. That's it. That's the miracle. Ethnological miracle. Bringing these different people together. Informing them into one nation is a miracle. And the miracle is set forth in the very next chapter in Ezekiel's prophecy. But not only is it an ethnological miracle, but I'd remind you too that Israel is a sociological miracle. How in the world can you explain what goes on in Israel today? Three million Jews in that land. When it was born in 1948, only a half a million Jews. From 52 nations around the world. The sociologists said it won't work. It just can't work. Why these Jews talk different languages. Very few of them knew any Hebrew at all. They talked the language that they came from. French or English or Russian or whatever it might be. They didn't speak Hebrew. The only thing they had was the blood of Abraham in their veins. They did not have the, uh, the language at all. And yet these Jews began to come back and the sociologist says, it'll never work until now you have about 3 million Jews from 92 countries around the world in the land of Israel tonight. And the nation is born, the army is operating, the government is functioning. The Hebrew University is turning out uh, graduates. Did you know that in, America, in, in Israel tonight, there are more medical doctors per thousand people than any country on the earth? 
You talk about a health program. The greatest health program in the world is in the land of Palestine, the land of Israel, this very night. Did you know that juvenile delinquency in Israel is almost an unknown thing? Those Jews have so control, and the problem of drinking and alcoholism in Israel is almost non-existent. They just don't have that as we have it in America. It's just not there. The problem of drugs, just not there. And they live next door to the land that produces the drugs of America, Turkey. But there's no drug problem in Israel. Those Jews and their super skill and their efficient government have so control over that land until juvenile delinquency is unknown. Drunkenness is not a problem. Drugs is not a problem in the land of Palestine. In the city of Haifa, the seaport village, the seaport city rather, of Israel, a woman can safely walk the streets at two o'clock in the morning and have no fear of being molested. A mother with children or young people can play uh, in the parks and in the lanes of Haifa as well as other cities in Israel without any fear of being disturbed or molested or raped or ravished as sometimes we experience uh, in our land. The problem of dropouts in school just doesn't exist. The problem of dropouts in the university just doesn't exist. And believe it or not, the Bible is used in Israel as a textbook both for geography and history. Those Jews are studying history out of the Bible and geography as well. Many of them memorize entire sections of the Old Testament in, the, in their process of getting an education. Sometimes those, those memory uh, contests become a great contest. Jews memorize in the Old Testament. I say to you, here is a sociological miracle, the land of Israel. It's amazing how those Jews work. I've seen some of their, uh, some of their farms, by the way. They work on the farms. In America, most of the Jews sit behind a polished desk in some bank somewhere. But in Israel, they plow the soil and plant the soil and raise the food and work and toil by the sweat of their brow. They don't complain about it. They're glad to do it. They're proud most of all that they're Jews and that they're in their homeland. The sociologist said it couldn't happen. It has happened and become a great sociological miracle. An ideal nation of all the nations of the earth in every detail is the land of Israel tonight. Then I'll remind you also of the agricultural miracle that Israel is. Here's a land that I read to you a moment ago where the Bible says that it was desolate and barren and waste in the eyes of all that passed by that has now commenced to blossom and bud like the Garden of Eden. Did you know that there are only about six nations in the world tonight that produce enough food for their own population? America is one of those nations. Canada is one of those nations. Australia is one of those nations. New Zealand is one of those nations. And Israel. The only nation in the old world that produces enough food for its own population is Israel. Isn't that astounding? Isn't that unusual? It certainly is. That's a miracle. This nation is surrounded by ancient nations like Turkey. And like uh, Assyria, Assyria, and like Egypt, and many other nations. 
And none of those nations produce enough food to feed their own people. If it wasn't for America, America gets cursed and misunderstood and criticized around the world. But America has kept some of the nations on this earth alive for a whole generation. And that's so with Egypt, that's so with Greece, and that's so with Syria, and it's also so with Jordan and many other nations in the Middle East. They are literally fed by the American farmer with his skill in producing. And among the five or six nations in the world, and think that there's a hundred and 22 nations in the UN tonight. And the only five or six of them that produce enough food to feed their own population in Israel is one of them. A brand new nation only since 1948 produces food enough to export around the world. Isn't that a miracle? The Valley of Jezreel, here it is. I think I can give it to you in a nutshell. The Valley of Jezreel, a few years ago was a, was a, uh, a wasteland. A great massive valley extended from Mount Carmel all the way down to Judea. And from Galilee out to the Mediterranean Sea. Vast valley, largest valley I've ever seen in my life is the Valley of Jezreel, called in the New Testament the Valley of Megiddo. I, I, I'd hate to say how many acres of land in that valley, how many square miles in that valley. As far as you can see with your naked eye, you can see those plains, not a hill to obstruct the view, not a forest, not a forest in that old valley. As far as you can see, the plains of Jezreel. And I've traveled across those plains four times, and I don't recall having seen one acre that was not under cultivation. Some kind of grain, or orange grows, or banana grows, or vegetable uh, fields, tomatoes, anything you can think of almost, is red there in the valley of Megiddo. So productive is that massive valley today until they call it the breadbasket of the Middle East. And those Jews since 1948 has developed that great valley into what it is today, the breadbasket of the Middle East. With its irrigation and with the increase of rainfall from five inches per year in 1917 to 19 inches last year, God did that. Jews had nothing to do with that. God did that. And with their irrigation to boost that, they've literally made the Valley of Megiddo the most productive spot in all the Middle East as far as food is concerned. None of the land laying idle, none of it under, uh, uh, laying by, all of it cultivated and producing. I was told that sometimes those Jewish farmers produce four crops of tomatoes in one year around the Sea of Galilee, on the hills of Galilee, four crops of tomatoes in one year by irrigation and by other process that those Jews know how uh, to, to utilize. That's a miracle. That's an agricultural miracle. While other countries don't seem to have enough to live on and can't produce out of the ground enough to keep body and soul together. Here's a brand new nation with the blessing of God upon it in such a degree until its production of food is a miracle known by all the nations of the world to the degree that the whole world marvels at what the Jew has done in such a short period of time. I marvel at that. I marvel at that. 
an agricultural miracle. If you go to Israel, you'll see those mighty pumps the Jews put in Galilee. Electric pumps in Galilee. And Galilee is 800 feet beneath sea level and is surrounded by mountains. And they pump that water up to the mountain tops that, uh, that encircle Galilee. <clears throat> when you go into Galilee, you go down. Regardless of where you, unless you come up the Jordan Valley, but otherwise you go down to the, guard, uh, to the uh, Sea of Galilee. And those Jews pumped that water up to reservoirs on top of the mountain. And they buried great pipes, concrete pipes in the ground, massive concrete pipes, big enough to drive automobile in, some of them. And they pumped water at, at, up to the mountains, and the force of gravitation moves that water a hundred miles down through the valley of Megiddo, down the coast of the Mediterranean, all the way to Gaza, and all the way down to Bathsheba. And as time goes on, they lay new pipes and new pumps. And you see pumping stations every few miles, pumping that water, giving it force, further and further down in that Sinai Peninsula. And every mile that irrigation system is built, the land turns green, and they begin to produce food in a staggering way. An agricultural miracle. Now America has a great agricultural miracle economy as well. But can you think of that in an old country? Down in Egypt, when I was down in Egypt, I never saw such bleak barrenness in my life. It seems that not even weeds would grow, just dead dirt. Not even white sand, just dead red dirt, Egypt's land. And you, you never saw a weed, anything like that. Very seldom saw grass of any kind unless it was in people's yards, and shrubbery unless it was in somebody's yard. But out in the fields and on the side of the road, nothing but bleak deadness. And those poor Egyptians uh, can hardly exist, hardly keep life in their bodies. On the mega fair, they're able to get out of that dead soil in Egypt's land. The only production Egypt has is right by the shores of the Nile River. And were it not for the Nile, Egypt would be an uninhabitable land. And when you compare that with what Israel is today, you just almost stagger at the miracle of God in that area. Then I want you to note also that in Israel tonight you have uh, a language miracle. Now can you imagine people coming from 92 countries around the world, migrating back into one land, and every man speaking his own tongue, trying to set up a new kingdom, a new nation, a new government. Can you imagine the confusion? How in the world could those people ever get together? How can they have any communion together? They come from different cultures, different religions, different languages around the world, all of them having one common tie. Seed of Abraham, the only thing they've got in common, seed of Abraham. And they taught their own native languages. And somebody said, well, they seem to have been blessed in many ways, but they said, the Hebrew language will never be revived. The sociologists and the educators around the world said they'll never be successful in reviving a dead language. They just can't do that. And the wise men of the world said they just can't do that. And uh, I guess, humanly speaking, it would have been an impossible thing. Suppose I were to say that the time will come when Latin, a dead language, will be revived. And people will be speaking Latin in Italy, 
instead of Italian. No, I don't think that's going to happen. And for, for the benefit of school kids, I pray it won't. I just pray it won't, sure enough. But anyway, a Hebrew would be just as difficult to imagine the reviving of the Hebrew language. Now, Hebrew is a, is a tremendous language. I, I know nothing about it. I've never studied, not even the Hebrew alphabet. I would not even be able to give you the alphabet. I've just never studied Hebrew. I know a little bit about the Greek. I majored in Greek when I was in the university. But there's all the difference in the world between Greek, the language of the New Testament, and Hebrew, the language of the Old Testament. I know nothing about it. It's a dead language. Now, Greek's not. No, Greek's a very uh, widely used language around the world. You'd become amazed if you knew how many words in our English are Greek words. Many, many words, especially in the field of medicine. Many words in the field of medicine. In the field of, of, uh, of drugs, many words are literally transliterated into our English that are Greek words. Many words that you use are Greek words. I could give you a dozen of them just like that, that are transliterations into our English language. And Greek is not a dead language, not at all. But Hebrew, that's different. While the alphabet's different, the characters are different, it's just a dead language. And you might get these people back together, but you'll never get them speaking Greek, uh, Hebrew. You might get them all speaking English. And one thing that astounds me is wherever you go, you can get along if you can speak English. Yes, if it's in France or Italy or, or Israel or Egypt, if you can speak English, you can get along. They, most everybody knows something about English. I guess it's the most widely spoken language on earth today. And so these wise men said, though the nation is born, their original mother language is dead. But wait a minute, wait a minute. Did you know in the school system in Israel, they're teaching the Hebrew language to boys and girls? And a boy or girl can get a foreign language quicker than anybody in the world. I marvel at these missionary children, Bobby Powell's kiddies and Brother Jimmy Rose's kiddies. These kids that were born here in America and reared up here at Tabernacle, go with their parents to the mission field, and in one year, they're talking in another tongue. In one year, they can pick it up. They have no difficulty. And in Israel, they've solved the problem of the Hebrew language by teaching it to boys and girls in grammar school. And those boys and girls, in turn, go home and teach the Hebrew mother tongue to their Jewish mom and daddies. And a great miracle has taken place in spite of the impossibility of it. And the language of the Hebrew nation is actually being revived. That's a miracle. I mean, for 2,000 years, the language was not used. The language was not, or language was not spoken. If a Jew was an English uh, Jew, he spoke English. If he was a French Jew, he spoke French. Or wherever he lived, that's the language that he spoke. And he didn't know any Hebrew. But since they've gone back to Israel, they are learning the language. It's a... It, it's taught in their schools, and the people are learning the Hebrew language, and it's being revived again. A miracle. Miracle. Only God could do that. Then I want you to note also that Israel is a financial miracle. The Lord made it that way. Anything that you touches usually becomes a financial miracle. That's so in America. That's so in Greenville. And me and you Gentiles stand off and watch these Jews get their coffers full of money and hate them because they do. But God gave them the skill to make money. And they can make it without half trying sometimes. While me and you work ourselves to death and hardly get ahead 
with anyone at all. But God gave them the skill to do that. And then God gave them the natural uh, resources in the land to make money with. Did you know that the world's richest mineral deposit is the Dead Sea? And all those millenniums and those centuries when people passed through the land of Israel and said it's a barren wasteland, it's worthless, desolate, and they moved on and forgot it. They walked right by the richest depository in all the world, the Dead Sea, and forgot how rich it was. And it never dawned upon the human family, even wise people in America, how rich Israel was until the Jew went back. And the land was reborn in 1948. The Dead Sea is not a large body of water, 1,300 feet under sea level, lowest spot on the globe, by the way. The waters of Jordan and Galilee flow 100 miles from Galilee down the Jordan Valley, empty into the Dead Sea. There's no exit. That's why it's called the Dead Sea. 26% salt, heavy, thick with salt. Pick it up. The water dries almost immediately and leaving the salt in your hand when you put your hand in the water. No living thing in it, no fish in it, nothing can survive. 26% salt, waste, desert, useless. So people thought. But when the Jews went back, they began to discover how much chemicals, all kind of chemicals that I'm not familiar with. If I was a chemist, I could talk more intelligently right at this point. But chemicals that are used in fertilizer, Chemicals like salt, chemicals like phosphate, and other things that are almost essential to our modern way of life is stored in such an abundance in the Dead Sea until there's no parallel like it in all the earth. Those Jews, they go into the land, go into the Dead Sea, and they'll build a dike across the lower end. The water is shallow for the most part. And they build a dike across uh, an area of the Dead Sea. And they'll isolate a little body of water behind that dike. And then they'll dye that water green because the green color makes it evaporate quicker. And with that dike where the other water can't get to this isolated water, they let it alone for a few days after they've dyed it green and the water evaporates and leaves behind truckload upon truckload upon truckload of rich chemicals that they can go in and scoop up with their bulldozers and send out on their trucks around the world and fill their coffers with money that's been there since the earth was begun, way back in the days of Adam. And they know how to get that phosphate and that salt and other chemicals out of the waters of the Dead Sea. They have mighty plants all there around the Dead Sea where they, where they uh, uh, work that chemical or develop that chemical or purify whatever it might be and make it usable on the markets. And they ship it around the world. Use it in their own land. Ship it around the world. Rich. The richest spot on God's earth. Is the Dead Sea. That's a miracle. A financial miracle. To keep that little nation without much reserve. God had the reserve built up for them. When they went back. And they discovered it and found the reserve. And now using it. To become one of the richest nations in all the earth and one day will be the richest nation in all the earth. Isn't that a miracle? We thank you for listening to the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. 
If this sermon was a blessing to you, please share and invite others to listen and join us next time on the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast.